Hello and welcome to Private Practice Podcast. This week we're taking a little break from our series on, on Becoming a Person to talk about the French psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan and a film that has just been made by an American director, Richard Leeds, called Adieu Lacan. And for that purpose, I decided that instead of talking to Dan, I would find someone who has a deep understanding of the French language and some contextual stuff to do with France throughout the 20th century. Someone would have some real insight in all of that kind of thing. And I couldn't find anyone suitable, <laughs> but... <laughs> You are a motherfucker. Um, but I just brought the uh, the other French person that I have in the, in the next room into the studio. So would you like to say hello to the listener? Hi, listener. <laughs> and I also happen to be a history teacher. I know stuff. And I speak five languages. Just saying. <laughs> and uh, Dan currently has COVID. That's another reason he's not joining us. He has no voice at the moment. So if you hear any future issue episodes when we go back to On Becoming a Person, then you'll know that he didn't die. Otherwise, welcome to the new look, new sound of Private Practice Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so I interviewed the director of this film, which was amusing. Like, the interview went well, but it was kind of funny because... If I'm about to play the interview and you'll hear it just crashes into it and then I knew that I only had 40 minutes to talk to him but what I didn't realise was that at the end of the 40 minutes the video link and everything would just cut out so from his point of view I just disappeared into thin air <laughs> without saying goodbye or anything <laughs> which is rude just saying um, so in the interview, there's a description of the film and all sorts of things, so I won't do that now. Um, I think now I will play the interview. Well, that's the moment when you push about it. Yeah. Yeah, of course, we're not going to do it right now because we don't get the kind of time. Yeah. Okay. So, an unusual private practice podcast, haphazard stuff. Style, we'll just launch in as we are. In fact, as you're a uh, film director, and um, uh, and and we're doing these, we're doing this over a Zoom call. I thought I'd have a prop, so I've got an out of date copy of China Daily Good. to make it look like I'm in some kind of hostage situation. <laughs> <laughs> Most people have sort of like bookcases behind them uh, showing all the intelligent things that they like to read, but seeing as I never have that here. <laughs> so welcome. Uh, how do you pronounce your surname? Is it Leeds? <clears throat> My father used to say um, anything but lead ass. <laughs> uh, but it's but for uh, it's a long story, but we uh, I we calls pronounces it Leeds like the like the city so okay uh so richard leeds is here with me today to talk about uh his film called adieu lacan and so i i mean everyone as in you the listener are all too familiar with with me somehow the listener puts up with me um, I can only assume that the things we talk about are sufficiently interesting enough that this is not enough of a, a detraction. But um, would you like to just uh, introduce yourself a little bit, 
beyond just film director? <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, I'm uh, from New York City. I made, I guess now I, I've lost track of how many uh, feature films, but the first one was about a, a woman who wants a lobotomy in 1953. Uh, so, you know, going from lobotomy to psychoanalysis, come on. I mean, you know, it's a good arc. Um, at least in my opinion. Um, and uh, um, yeah, so I've always had this interest. It, it really started when I did a piece of uh, performance art uh, based actually on the records of my ma uh, maternal uncle who had been in World War II as a soldier in uh, Germany in the army and uh, had on returning when he went to Princeton, had a psychotic break and wound up in a psychiatric hospital, a, a veterans hospital and spent 10 years there until he either escaped or wandered off accidentally and was hit by pain. And uh, I just found his record so interesting in that um, as well as saying whatever they said about him, they also told a story about the storytellers, you could say, or about that period of time. And with a little bit of research, I learned that it had been a pivotal moment of mental health care, such as it is today uh, in the United States and, and really around the world. Uh, in the United States after the Second World War, um, it was really around treating uh, the returning soldiers who were, uh, as the saying goes, a non-stigmatized patient population. So the first Mental Health Act of the United States is uh, uh, in 45, uh, and the uh, formation of the National Institute of Mental Health is 1945. And um, <clears throat> I began to read, I was doing a lot of reading uh, about, as I started to do a doctoral dissertation around this subject in comparative literature, because I was interested in how uh, mental health care and madness and various other ideas uh, uh, become part of American culture after the Second World War um, and uh, how that was uh, you know, reflected or, or uh, in what its connection was to this, this rise. Um, and on my doctoral uh, committee was an uh, anthropologist, Mick Tausick. And uh, Mick, I, I brought in a whole bunch of books. I was so excited. And Mick said, well, you know, Richard, it's great you're reading all these books, but you know, if you meet people who actually do this work, you'll have a totally different feeling for the material. So I started to um, meet a whole bunch of clinicians, uh, worked with different groups, uh, history of psychiatry section in New York City. Um, I also vol volunteered at an outpatient center for severely mentally ill, um, did a, a assistant director to theater program, there and read, uh, did a, had a couple groups where we read out loud, actually short stories and talked about them. And uh, one group I uh, became connected to at that time was a Lacanian psychoanalytic association uh, called uh, APRECU. And uh, so fast forward, oh gosh, 35 years, I'm still a member of uh, the APRECU psychoanalytic association um, and uh, I was asked to uh, stage or stage direct uh, a reading 
uh, of a play. And that play was written by a Brazilian psychoanalyst, uh, Betty Milan, and it was her own story and uh, called uh, Goodbye Doctor. And that was um, one of the two pieces by Betty that I uh, put together and eventually became the movie that we're here to talk about, uh, Adieu Lacan. Well, I'm glad that you have such an intricate background in psychoanalysis, actually, because I mean, I went to a film school and ended up making this podcast. And oh. uh, you, you, <laughs> you're the one who's passed on the train. You were the guy going the other way. Yeah, exactly. You're way more qualified to make this podcast than me. No, normally, I do this with uh, my friend Dan, who actually works in mental health and brings some element of. Um, of reputation to what he's saying, whereas I'm just the the babbling idiot. But I could see from this film. I mean, it's it's a it's a sort of like a love letter to psychoanalysis. Really, the, I mean, the whole film is psychoanalysis. So, should we just um, for for the listener who uh, we assume has not yet seen the film? Um, yeah, a, it, a brief synopsis. Yeah, well, it's it's I would yeah, I, I I soup to nuts. Uh, it's a it's a psychoanalysis uh, of uh, the story of this young woman uh, who's traveled from Brazil to uh, Paris. Her name is Seriema, um, and it's the autobiographical story of Betty Milan. Um, and uh, she originally comes with the idea that she's going to carry back to uh, Brazil uh, the concepts and ideas uh, of Jack Lacan. And she meets him and she's in the midst of a personal crisis. Uh, she's had two miscarriages and uh, has separated from her husband, whom she loves very much. And uh, her life's falling apart and she decides to do an analysis with Lacan um, you know, to, to find out, as she says, why she's alone and why her uh, path to motherhood has become such an impossible one. And the story of the film is the story of this analysis. And um, it's set in 1972, I think. Is that right? It, it starts in 1972. It's, it's a number of, of sessions going over a number of years, but starting in 72, yeah. Because one of the things, many of the things I've been thinking about since watching the film are just the, the differences between 1972 and 2022. So, I mean, some of the, some of the issues that, that come up, um, the, the father issues, like, for example, I, it's, it's easy to imagine in 2022 that uh, if a couple of people sort of gossiping in the in the waiting room of a dentist or something about about their problems and and one of them might just say do you think it has something to do with your father <laughs> it's almost that some of these ideas are now almost clichés but back then i w i just wonder how 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 much of a shock might it have been um given that the ideas of psychoanalysis were just still relatively unknown i suppose well, I think it's um, I, I don't th I think what's shocking to what was shocking to her was when the subject came to be about immigration, you know, that it was about I mean, her father was an immigrant and uh, 
she had done uh, previously done uh, psychoanalysis uh, with a uh, non with a Freudian or non Lacanian analyst, and um, the subject of her being an immigrant had never come up. And uh, in fact, in the prologue to the film, she's uh, kind of saying uh, to us, to herself, that she's going to absolutely avoid uh, the topic of her being uh, an immigrant to Brazil, that her fa family uh, Im immigrated from uh, Lebanon and that she's of Arab descent. As she says, it has absolutely nothing to do with her problems and she doesn't want to waste uh, Dr. Lacan's time. And she um, uh, also clearly is uh, uh, conflicted about uh, being uh, an immigrant, uh, particularly uh, uh, from a group that is uh, very stigmatized. Um, and uh, that it's really through the topic of immigration that she gets to her, her father. Um, and so I think it's one of those things, you know, Hitchcock said that um, in, in a suspense story, uh, you should you should let your audience know uh, everything, um, and in a way, uh, you know the story of Oedipus Rex is a is a suspense story. Everyone knows, everyone in the audience uh, in fifth century Athens knew where that story was going, and in a suspense film, you let the audience know exactly where it's going. But the real question is how it gets there. You know how it's going to. You know, the details. So, you know, I think it's true. Her, uh, the topic of her father is a, a major one for her, but um, it nevertheless, it's a complete surprise to her. You know, I mean, I think that's kind of the paradoxical uh, thing that uh, many people find in analysis is uh, the relation, you could say, of the, of the particular to the universal. Um, but um, her own her own story you know, has a lot to do with this uh, the crossroads of uh, uh, as she relates in the film uh, of how her father was you know, called all kinds of names um, and how how her father as a Christian Arab had been uh, you know forced into all kinds of of uh, routines that were about bias against him as being Christian in, in a Muslim world. And yet, nevertheless, in, in Brazil, it was immediately assumed that because she was, uh, her father was Arab, that he was therefore Muslim. So she, he, she was stigmatized, or, or they were, had all this racial had, hatred aimed at them, uh, ironically, as being Muslims. So, um, so the, her her father um, is is involved with all that, and and the, it does come up, and and she had completely forgotten about her father, um, and uh, and there you go. It it, it does play uh, her father does play a major role in her analysis. I think that's the 
the place where the the differences between 1972 and 2022 in terms of psychoanalysis there's a huge difference between the two dates but in terms of just arriving in Paris uh, obviously back in the 70s you couldn't just pop on Expedia and be in Paris a few hours later so it must have been a huge um, feeling yeah. of of uprooting um, so that's one thing and then the other but the other thing is that only today I saw an article in Le Monde about refugees from Ukraine arriving in France. And I mean, the, the, the gist of the article was why is, why is it so much more difficult for, for uh, Ukrainian refugees in France compared with other European countries? And, and, and it kind of boils down to the language. And so there's so much of this in the film. Um, I think, firstly... One of the things she she seems to do is is um, sort of like deflect the, the the bigger issues, and she gets uh, she gets caught up in the nitty gritty of like the the difference between whether a tree is masculine in French compared oh. with being feminine in in Portuguese. Do you think that was a, a deflection or 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 not? Well, you know, I think it's it also becomes. Uh, a major point, um, but no, I think part of what um, psychoanalysis and uh, a certain kind of filmmaking have in common is they take what might be a a small detail. You know, they're interested often in, uh, for example, in, in in an analysis where there's a you know, there's a major action in a film, uh, in a film, in, in a dream, and then there's a small detail, and then you know the a- analyst may focus on the small detail, or have you kind of focus on the small detail, and I think that's true with a certain kind of filmmaking that was very much involved in in the making of this film. Um, you know, there was a Paul Schrader who who's probably most famous for Taxi Driver. Uh, when he was young, uh, came up with an idea he called Transcendental Cinema, which he recently released, uh, again, re-released, which talks about um, filmmakers like Vittoria De Sica, um, Bresson, um, Ozu, uh, Chantal Ackerman, uh, uh, filmmakers that, uh, as he says, um, in, in contrast to most films, which kind of try to grab you by the throat and never let go, kind of, you know, just just frenetically try to keep your energy, keep you involved. There are films that kind of lean back and um, make space, uh, and you either are interested and <clears throat> become engaged or you completely lose interest. I mean, he mentions, for example, a film by Vittoria De Sica, Umberto Di, where there's this um, a young woman, very poor, trying to light a match, and she does it three times, striking it against the wall. And um, in a way, it's you know you could say it's boring, but in another way, because the camera stays there, the frame stays there, you begin to think about what exactly is involved with this woman who's trying to light this match and what her life's like. And in a similar way, our our way of making this film was the kind of give it time to breathe, so to speak. So um, 
in the in the case of language, it is a it is a deflection. I mean, but it also becomes a key to um, uh, the the um, telling of the story of her her own sense of discovery. It, it reminded me actually of uh, a film by Joanna Hogg called Unrelated. It's one of my favourite films. And if anyone asked me oh, what happens in the film, I'd say, not, half jokingly, I'd say not much. Um, there's My yeah. favourite scene, in fact, is when... Uh, so it's, a, it's about a, a family on holiday in Italy and um, they have a, a guest come and stay with them. And the guest is, has basically brought a whole load of emotional baggage. And they're, they're sitting by the pool and there's some kind of argument going on inside and you just hear the screams and everyone by the pool is just sat there in complete silence and they just sort of like just, just cross and uncross their legs or lift up the newspaper yeah. or whatever it is they do. And so basically all the action is happening off screen and and when, when you're doing a film about psychoanalysis, you're essentially, you're looking at what's... In one on one sense, you're looking at what's not happening because they're talking about everything that right. happens outside of the room. But then at the same time, you're, the, the the what happens in the room is extremely uh, significant for the analyst because that's all they have to go on. So you're it's like you're watching the film. You're you're being uh, you're, you're being in the seat of the analyst in some sense. Um, <laughs> Were you, when when you were directing, were you, were you conscious of having? I, I mean, I certainly was not uh, uh, making notes of how often the camera was on one character or the other. But I guess from memory, it was more on her than on Lacan. Would you say that? Yeah. Well, you know, there there were a couple examples uh, from moving images uh, that I looked at and had an influence influence on me. One was. Uh, in in therapy, which I you know it was a seri uh, uh, series TV series I, I I enjoyed, but it was exactly the opposite of what I wanted to do. You know the the camera there is always parallel to the ground and stays away from the characters. It has a kind of objectivity, um, <clears throat> and I really wanted to uh, make a film that kind of um, gave you a sense of transference and a sense of, uh, you know, being uh, very subjectively involved. And for that, our, the film uh, that the cinematographer Valentina Coniglia and I turned to was uh, Carl Dreyer's 1928 film, uh, Joan of Arc. Um, and there, uh, in contrast to the camera always being parallel to the ground as it is in therapy, um, the camera, there are these use of extreme angles, uh, Dutch angles often, which gives you a sense of just the, uh, the sense of chaos that the main character, Joan of Arc, who's uh, being, uh, on, is on trial for her, her religious beliefs um, and uh, that she's experiencing. So, um, and that also gave us, uh, or gave me uh, the idea of shooting the film uh, in 4.3, which is an almost square frame, which is the oldest uh, standard uh, frame in, in cinema, and black and white, that these things would evoke a sense of time. Um, you know, both psychoanalysis and cinema are born at the same time and at the end of 
the 19th century. But also, you know, one of the things, James, about, um, you know, the interest we can have in these um, uh, films where there's very little action going on, I think is in contrast that, especially now to a world we live in, which is so saturated uh, with images and with disruption, um, that to see something which is uh, almost kind, uh, has a different scansion, a very deliberate, uh, slower kind of pacing to it, uh, can actually be uh, something we find we have a great thirst for and, and can really enjoy and appreciate, as it appears many have, you know, this film, I do like on. Yeah, I think there was there's there was a, a Netflix show about Freud, um, which I found a little bit bizarre. I mean, I, I enjoyed it; it was fun, but it was almost like Freud supernatural action adventure mystery solver. Because right. <laughs> I mean, I suppose it, it's true you say about the um, the aspect ratio and the color um, helps to place us in the era because it would be um it would be a different film if it was sort of like constantly cutting away to the boat from rio or the the family back home or um or right. any of her life in no. paris as well yeah i mean one of the things about it that was because it was in such a limited uh, space uh we were able to shoot it in uh sequence uh chronologically which as you i'm sure remember from film school is very rarely done i mean the only uh filmmakers who did it on a regular basis uh that i know of were michelangelo antonioni and robert altman um and uh robert altman was a is a filmmaker i had some connections to through uh, elliot gould an actor i've worked with who did two very famous films uh, or three films actually with uh, Robert Altman but shooting in sequence because we were only in uh, this one it basically it's Jack Lacan's office and uh, and and the waiting room um, we were able to shoot um, the story in the in the order in which it happens so this allowed uh, it's great for the actors because they can, if they invent something, they know they can build it into the character as they go along. If you're shooting out of sequence, which is usually the case, because, you know, if you have three bar scenes, the producer will say, we're going to shoot them at the same time. We're not going to waste money coming back here in time. So are you crazy? Um, uh, but if you shoot in sequence, you really can kind of build things in. And, and so also for the cinematographer and myself, we're really interested in the sense of time in this film. You know, uh, one of the uh, parts of the story, the uh, sessions of variable length, which is what uh, Lacan became infamous for. He was thrown out of the International Psychoanalytic Association in 1953 for uh, having uh, sessions of dura uh, durable, of uh, variable length. And so, um, this topic of time, which is in the movie, was also something we were uh, very interested in. And uh, shooting in sequence, I think we took greater risks uh, than we would have if we had not um, 
been able to act, you know, feel our way along like musicians uh, creating a piece as they go along. In terms of the, the dialogue, the things that they say, did, did you take actual quotes from, uh, from, uh, from journals or, or, or any kind of recordings from either of the two characters? How, to, what, to what extent did you use creative license and to what extent is it based on um, uh, real sessions? They were um, the the script really comes from uh, two sources. Uh, uh, Betty Milan's uh, play uh, "Goodbye Doctor" and uh, uh, her novel uh, "Lacan's Parrot." And as much as possible, I retained her language. I mean, obviously, uh, I mean one of the tricky things is that her first uh, language was Brazilian Portuguese and. You know, her and Lacan are talking, especially at the beginning, about you know why 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 do you want to do an analysis in French when it's not your maternal tongue? Um, and we were making the film in English, so it it added a, a third level of uh, linguistic linguistic complexity to it. She she uh, referred to the play uh, as a uh, fictional story. And I called the film, uh, I think very early on, it's identified as a fiction because I didn't want to, I wanted to have a license, a, a liberty to do a few things um, that happen in the film, um, which uh, will, I don't know if we can keep them a secret, but you know, not everything is realistic. It, it's, it's pretty much, uh, it, it really does give you a sense of what an analysis is, but at the same time, there are moments where it's, it's um, clearly um, uh, fictional. But, um, but as far as I know, the, the, what's recounted, the, the, the exchange between her and Lacan, the character named Lacan, uh, is uh, faithful to her own uh, recollection of her analysis with with Lacan, and um, which not only includes the dialogue between them, but I think one of the interesting things in the film are the um, the internal voices um, that we hear as the two characters. We hear their thoughts in voiceover as they're having uh, various thoughts about uh, you know uh, who their own what they're doing or or uh, who the other person is. And um, so we not only uh, hear, uh, for example, in this case, Lacan's, um, what he chooses to say uh, to Sariema, but he, we also hear his uh, inner thoughts, uh, including moments where he thinks he uh, screwed up. Um, so, and um, one of the things that was different about the film than the play, and the play was she called it Goodbye Doctor. She didn't mention that it was Lacan. And another thing she did, that he did, was to um, have the doctor be concerned with uh, his mother's death, uh, his, the, the coming of his, of his mother's death. And, um, you know, Betty was a tremendous uh, help in making this film, very supportive. Um, and wanted to call it uh, Adieu Lacan, and she supported that decision. And also that I wanted 
Uh, I knew that Lacan at this time uh, had been uh, dealing with uh, his his final illness, which did not. Uh, it's it, I think it was in '81, so it's still almost a decade away. But he's beginning to get uh, have the illness that would eventually lead to his death. Um, and so, you know, so that's an issue for the character for for Lacan. And I think that too, I, I mean, I think he comes off as mortal and the mistakes he makes, uh, the moments where he's kind of frustrated with his own, uh, what he said and, and, and wishes to change it, um, is, is one of the things that makes Lacan, this film, sympathetic, which uh, many people have read uh, the biography by uh, Elizabeth Runesco, where he really comes off as a, as a cold fish. And uh, in the film, um, he's a much warmer, uh, sympathetic human being. And I think uh, the fact that uh, we, it's underlined that he's uh, mortal uh, in, in a number of different ways helps to, helps to make that the case. Did you consider at any point making the film in French or would that, would that have yes. been, you did? I did think about it. Um, you know, in the end, I, uh, there are a number of factors. Uh, you know, after the Second World War, uh, the countries of Europe were, uh, were broke and they wanted to protect their own um, uh, film communities against the behemoth of Hollywood. So uh, France being among them, they set up systems to uh, support their own filmmakers. Um, and that system is still in place. Uh, I mean, every time you buy a ticket to see a film in Paris, a small amount goes to this film fund. And that is used to help support uh, French productions. And um, as a uh, American filmmaker, even though I'm a, you know, an independent filmmaker working on very, very small budgets, it's still somewhat uh, just difficult to come. And you know, you you don't have access to the same funding that you would uh, if you were working in France and you were part of the European Union. And, and getting the money was important. Uh, and uh, you know, New York City is such a great deep bench in terms of acting. Uh, I, I have a uh, casting director I've worked with uh, regularly who um, I really like working with. And um, yeah, I mean, I just, I just uh, love working in New York because I love working with actors and uh, it's just a great place uh, to, to, to turn and, and uh, um, you know, uh, begin casting. Uh, I'm I'm just currently aware of a graphic that's flashed up on my screen saying uh, you've got three minutes left until you need to upgrade. <laughs> so oh just I'm just so I could I mean I could talk about this you all have day, to but upgrade your guest. Is it you have to you have to upgrade your life. Um, oh. So I could I mean I I know I could talk about this all day, but the um, the 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 greater powers in the world are not having any of that. One thing I must say then is. Uh, if our listener is listening to this and thinking, okay, how do I get to see this film? What sort of 
distribution? Ah, well, they. I would. The short answer, uh, the quick answer, uh, since time is running out, is to go to uh, the name of the film.com. So www.adieulacon.com. That is www.adieulacon.com. And that will have to the various platforms on which you can see uh, the film. Uh, which include uh, Amazon and Apple TV. Those are the two that come right to mind. Uh, but the the list is changing all the time. So um, I would encourage the listener uh, to go to the website and uh, there they'll find um, all, all the options. Excellent. So a couple of years ago, I uh, quite spontaneously ended up arriving in Paris and suddenly living there with no plan before that to actually do so. And um, so I'm, and I currently live with a French person, so I can very much sympathize with her thoughts of feeling like um, no matter how it seems like you're very clearly articulating what it is you want to say, the the, the minute you misgender an inanimate object, you're pretty much completely rejected as if you're talking in a in a dead language that, that doesn't exist and we may as well just give up on talking altogether. So I cannot imagine what it would have been like to actually go into psychoanalysis in that of all languages. So... Um, that for me was probably the the, the, um, the biggest talking point because we were watching it here together and so me being an English speaker uh, yes. with a French speaker. So anyway, thank you very much for coming on to the thank podcast you. and talking about it. And um, I hope uh, lots of people who are interested in this get to see the film. And um, And what next? What sort of things are you doing next? Ah, well, in the fall, I'm shooting a film uh, that takes place in Vienna uh, just before World War I. And you want to guess who's the character in that film? <laughs> Freud. <laughs> so I, I'm going to become, you see, I'm becoming the director to be known for uh, shooting scenes on couches. You know how they like, some directors are really known for car chases and some directors are really known for love scenes or something. They're gonna, you know, they go, oh, we got two scenes uh, with people lying on couches. Oh, that's that's Leeds. You got to get Leeds. No, he's the director. He knows how to shoot a couch. Uh, <laughs> so this is, I'm, I'm I'm working I'm working on this, James. Wonderful. So um, I the one thing that I got from this interview is when he talked about the fact that it was technically difficult for him to shoot the movie with French actors be speaking French and with um, like to find the proper cast to make it really believable. Actually, for most movies, we don't care. Like, for instance, Marie Antoinette by Sofia Coppola, like whatever, if the, the, the movie has not been recorded in French, because that's not the point. But the point, and this is something that I thought immediately after seeing the movie, the point of this movie is to talk about a woman who is from Brazil 
and then she takes a plane in the 1970s mind you 1970s right so it's not like easy peasy plane that we take nowadays i mean covid aside and because like i don't want to talk about that uh but in the world before right in 2019 for instance it's not like the easy peasy traveling that we do it was expensive it was a problem and she did that and she could speak french she could speak french mostly because she studied it and also because her mom her parents both of them are from lebanon and they're christian people from lebanon and christian people from lebanon oftentimes speak french fluently even at home i met many of them i've been to lebanon it's kind of customary for them um and this and then she starts having psychoanalysis which is literally based on language like it is made of language it's just like you're telling me I'm baking without flour. It's like, no, you cannot do psychoanalysis without language, at, even sign language, but, but at least language, right? And this is the core of the movie. He decided to make a movie about that. It's not me forcing him. It's him deciding to make a movie about that. It's just like making, a, a, you know, remaking Out of Africa in, in, in the North Pole. You're, you're like, it's Out of Africa. It's the core of the movie. Take your ass to Kenya and shoot the movie. That's what I think. Well, Lacan's, one of his main ideas is the idea of uh, communication being ultimately futile in the sense that whatever you feel inside, it's impossible that anyone can understand that no matter what words you choose, no matter how you present yourself and so on. And, I mean, for someone who's, who's one, one of his main ideas was to do with, uh, with communication, he was potentially an absurd genius because his books are almost impossible to read as far as I'm concerned. I've I managed to get through about a quarter of Ecri and that's and that was it. And I've got a quote here <laughs> to illustrate what I'm talking about. He says, I identify myself in language, but only by losing myself in it like an object. What is realized in my history is not the past definite of what was, since it is no more, or even the present perfect of what has been in what I am, but the future anterior of what I shall have been for what I am in the process of becoming. And that's exactly the kind of... Bullshit. Well, it's... It, I know, because it makes intellectual sense if you were to break down every single bit of the sentence in terms of the meaning of the words and the structure it, it, it makes sense but it's just a very difficult thing to follow and therefore most people won't follow it and therefore it's useless but it kind of demonstrates what he's trying it does that is his overall message he's his one of his the themes of what he wrote about or what he thought was that no matter what i try to say to you to try and make you understand something that I'm thinking, you'll never understand it, no matter how hard I try. But I don't... But, I mean, the, the, this is sort of like the extreme of making it as difficult as possible, with short of doing interpretive dance for you to try and work out what I'm saying. And so I don't know the extent to which it's absolutely essential for the cast to be speaking French because the point is that these are two people who or this is the the, the main character what's her name? Sariema she arrives somewhere and tries to articulate what she's thinking and her background to someone who's never seen it this is the whole psychoanalytic process and there's an element to which French is the subject in the sense that she has to 
Not French language. Yeah, but if she's trying to, if she meets someone who's never met her and has not lived her life and does not know any of the people in her life and doesn't know any of the feelings she's ever had, and she has to communicate that, no matter what she does in any language, it's going to ultimately in the in the eyes of Lacan be whatever's in his imagination. She's just feeding his imagination, and that's the same with any communication. According to him, that's his idea. Well, according to you know, uh, um, communication and marketing uh, lectures from Sciences Po, seventy-five percent of or seventy percent of what is said between a conversation is just lost. So whatever, right? In a conversation, seventy percent is lost. It means that people actually understand and get thirty percent of what is being told to them. Well, I don't know if that's true or not, but this is something. This is a principle that is used in. Uh, advertisement in order you know to convey the me meaning message and, and sell things right you, you just have to kind of at least try increase the 30 percent rate of uh, information <laughs> you're getting through right but i think it's nice of you to try to understand what he says right first and foremost i'd like to have this um this quote in french <laughs> second It's not, it's, you know, it's really honorable from you to try to understand what he says. But I'm telling you one thing. Before even, you know, going to the nitty-gritty of what he's saying, right, and trying to dissect the sentence, if it's worth our time, I just want to give a little bit of, uh, of context for this sentence. It's the context of this sentence is a context in which many famous people, Sartre, Camus, Lacan, whatnot, made a, a living off of telling Sentences that people cannot understand. It's true. That's just the way it is. I'm a native speaker of French. I have gone through 12 years of university studies in very prestigious schools. I didn't know and, that. You've never told me that before. I'm and, surprised. And I do not fully understand At first, second, or third glance, the sentence you've just said. It is a problem. And you know what? why it is a problem? It's a problem because I think it means that either it doesn't mean anything or it's the author that doesn't want it to mean anything. And for Sartre, it's the same. It's a bunch of sentences, a bunch of words put together in order to kind of appear more scientific and intelligent than what it actually is, right? And um, I had um, um, a teacher when I was studying art history, right? She wrote in a printed catalog, I'm going to say it in French for the, the for people who can speak French out there, right? She wrote, uh, uh, um, it was about some painting, whatever, abstraction pure d'une figuration. That's just a bit of the sentence she wrote, but I, this will be forever in my mind. Abstraction pure d'une figuration. It doesn't mean anything and it's not worth me trying to translate it in English. And this is purely because there is a generation of people in France who just think it makes them look better. It makes them appear, I don't know, more worldly or whatever, to just say sentences that don't mean anything, right? If you go to law school, every single sentence means something because the future of people and sometimes of a country depends on it. 
But then, if you start going history of heart, philosophy, psychology, then suddenly language is just kind of an adornment for paper. Basically, that's what it is, right? It's just like, it's decoration on a piece of paper, for some people, I think. But that's not actually the point uh, I was making. The point I was making is more about intellectual, I would say, honesty. When you are making a movie about something, make the movie about, about this thing. But don't try to go around it. Don't try to find shortcuts. When I said you're making a remake of Out of Africa, make it in Africa. Because that's in the title of the movie. The movie Casablanca was shot in Hollywood, right? But they had an excuse. It was shot in the middle of World War II. They could not come to Casablanca. It was actually like, you know, a city that was kind of dangerous at the time. Not Maybe not the most dangerous city in the world, but still, right? Um, and if you make a movie about someone who is literally struggling with language and has been struggling with language her whole life, right? Being Lebanese in Brazil, Brazilian in Paris and whatnot, and then having psychoanalysis in French, although it's not her mother tongue, and then so many things like this. And then she's trying also so many moments when she's trying to make arguments as to why she doesn't want to see that Portuguese speaking shrink that is also available in the, in the neighborhood, apparently nearby, right? She, she makes arguments about that. It just doesn't make sense to have it in English. But hold on, I just want to make sure that you're considering the, the, the director specifically said that there are barriers to actually making the film in France for him as an American director. But therefore, if he could make the film in New York with two French-speaking actors... You'd be fine with that. Of course. Okay. Because we don't care if you can see the Eiffel Tower, if it's a real <laughs> one or a fake one by the, the window. It doesn't have anything to do with where it is. It's just that this movie is literally about language. It is about language because if you're talking psychoanalysis, you're talking about talking, right? If you're talking about Lacan and, and this particular situation, you're talking about an intricate mixture of Portuguese and French going together and something. And also Arabic a little bit sprinkled. Uh, so just... I think in order to be fully honest, we don't care where the couch is located, right? You put a nice picture of the Eiffel Tower to make a fake window, and that's all, and that's all good, right? You can shoot it in New York if you want. But just, I mean, for something that is also kind of complicated and that is touching to subjects that are complicated, right? I, because, I mean, this is not Shrek, right? It, it's about something that is a little bit more complicated than that. Um just be honest and do it to the fullest and therefore do it in French so that at least it is going to be, uh, I mean, the subtitles are going to help people who don't speak French know Portuguese and the little Arabic that's sprinkled. And for the, the other ones, it's going to be at least um, fully honest. That's what I want to say. Like, it's, it's about honesty. It's about honesty f from the filmmaker. But then when, well, he's English and he speaks English. So how could it be honest if everything has to be, if, if he writes something and then everything has to be translated and then when it's on film, uh, the, for the people who don't speak French, they're going to be reading subtitles anyway. So then he writes something, it gets translated into French, Fre French actors say the words, and then it gets translated back into English with subtitles. That is a good question. I'm... I'm you might want to question his choice. As in, like, if you make a movie about language, yes, you have to be knowledgeable about language. I'm sorry, but I'm not, as far as I'm concerned, 
going to make a movie about science or how, you know, like dolphins reproduce uh, in the ocean. I do not know anything about that. So I'm not doing that. And um, I think, I think uh, we may be under the impression that like anyone is good at everything or can be good at everything. And it's kind of true, except um, for things that take a long but, time. <laughs> this is an extremely French point of view, because then what about all kinds of films where the director, uh, for example, a, a legal film and the director has never been to law school or never worked as a judge therefore you're, you'd say you're not allowed to make that because you're not qualified no they have consultants for that and then they have consultants that can explain and this is something that you know the actors and the, and the director can get it like it takes three months with the consultant and then they're good they're going to know about it. It's just like, you know, Erin Brockovich with Julia Roberts. Good movie, by the way. And uh, she just um, she just studied a little for some months in order to to be in, the, um, in, in character, right? And this is all good. But yes, maybe, you know, like making sure that you can understand the language that is the core of your movie is not too much to ask from a director, I think. Only if it was going to be in French. I, just, I don't know. I just not. I understand that the 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 one of the interesting things about the the real life story because it is an actual woman who actually went to see a real uh, guy. One of the interesting things about that is that is the language. The fact that she does psychoanalysis in a language that is not her native language. She 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 has to try and convey her feelings through a language that she's that is her second language which is difficult and it therefore is interesting to make into fiction well not to, to make a story because how do you explore the subject of her struggling to say things and struggling to know whether what she's saying is the right way to say it in the language according to the person who's listening as opposed to from her point of view as a learner. So that's interesting. But then at the same time, you're talking about a film being the product of a, for example, a director's immersion into a subject. And that's exactly what the director's done. He spent years in a, in a, a studying Lacan and psychoanalysis and then he made a film about the thing that he spent years studying. It's just that... The quality of the dialogues is kind of impaired by his lack of uh, linguistic knowledge. It is. But what do you mean by that? I mean exactly the same as if... You remember when we wa we watched together Ali Wong's uh, special on Netflix? Uh, yeah. It's funny, right? Um, do you think, honestly, it would be funny if I translated that in French? <laughs> The deep thinking of Ali Wong being pregnant all the time uh, and her cultural references and everything. Th these are things you cannot translate. And uh, in this movie, Adieu Lacan, they tried the best they could, but their best is not enough because it's the core of the movie. It's just like, you know, remember Top Chef. I mean, I don't know if they say the same in other countries, but in France, it's 
the ingredients are key, right? If you do something extremely simple with good ingredients, it's all good, right? But you can take bad ingredients and try to, to, to modify them and transform them. It will still be not good or, uh, or at least not as good as it could be, right? It's the same here with language. Language is the main ingredient of psychoanalysis as a whole. And it is the core and main ingredient of that movie that's about psychoanalysis of a Brazilian woman who took a plane to get uh, analyzed by a French shrink and decided purposely to do it in another language. And well, but I don't think that's true because of the, one of the main things that is... One of the main aspects of psychoanalysis is transference and counter-transference, which is the way that the the way that you say something gives um, signals an emotion that's picked up by the other person, vice versa, mm -hmm. which happens. Like you can't, you can. It's more like I think it would be more accurate to say that people try to use words to control that, and they always fail because it's not the language that's speaking. Therefore, the language is the least important thing in that situation. You think so, and you think this has what you say. You, you, you think what you say has nothing to do with what I just said. Are you talking about nonverbal and cultural and cultural signals coming from this Brazilian woman to a French person? That's exactly what you just said, and that's not present in the movie because yes, the actress is Brazilian, but the actor. And also, it's not it's and it's not being used in the movie very very much. Like what you just described as a phenomenon, right? It's not at the forefront. It should be, but it's not at the forefront of the, that communication between them as shown in the movie. It's not. Well, okay, we can all tell now that you're devastated that the film is not the thing that it could have been as mm -hmm. far as you think would have been ideal. But what if you take it for what it is, which is a psychoanalysis? So. Divorce it from the reality of the man Lacan who lived mm -hmm. and take it as a film about a woman who goes into psychoanalysis with an American psychoanalyst speaking English and mm. may and she's come from Portuguese and now she's speaking English and that's not her first language mm -hmm. either. It would only be her first language if it was in Portuguese mm -hmm. and neither English or, nor French are that. So no matter which uh, language the film is presented in, as long as it's not Portuguese, mm -hmm. you're seeing a woman speaking her second language in order to try and convey her feelings. So then, if you take the film on that basis... Oh, by the way, you... she I think in the movie she's kind of um, ad adhering to one of my theories that I've already <laughs> said, one of my many theories. When I say that whenever you are able to speak languages, several languages at a pretty high level, then you develop several personalities. And I think she makes a case about that. I think we're on the same page, her and I, that like you are not the same person depending on the language you're speaking. And this is something that this is literally like my soapbox when it comes to languages because I've seen it in myself. I definitely have at least three personalities. Um, and uh, I've seen it with um, other people. And I've talked about it with many people, especially, you know, living abroad. I was uh, fortunate to meet many, 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 many people who speak two languages on the daily. And they definitely don't have the same personality. Definitely they don't. There are things that they would not dare saying in one language and that they do say in other language. Like, for instance, half of the things that I say in English... I would not say it this way in French. 
in the same context. So this is something that we share, her and I, right? And uh, it's uh, it's uh, something that is not, I think, not really um, um, mm, put to good use in the movie. Well, one thing that Lacan also did was mm. he described uh, emotional phenomena using algebra, like mm. x plus y equals the square root of mm. n, which represents your daddy issues. You lost so, me. How do you feel about the um, disappointing lack of algebra in the film? <laughs> you lost me. He, Lacan, in his many ways of taking complicated ideas and representing them in an equally complicated way he well i mean unless of course you think in mathematics in which case what he did was actually taking something baffling and representing it in a way that this person can actually understand with algebra but he often used algebra to explain uh, a, a, a psychic phenomenon so like for example uh, I mean, I don't have an actual um, mm. um, equation, but he. But the point is that he used algebra, which was disappointingly the the, the film was disappointingly not stuffed full of algebra. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about that. I'm once again. I'm not knowledgeable to this point um, as much as the director or as much as you. When it comes to psych psychoanalysis, I'm not. I have studied F F uh, Freud and Lacan because it's compulsory when you are trying to get your high school uh, certificate in France. So I know about that, and I've I, I I interested also myself, you know, as a hobby. But I I'm not. I don't consider myself knowledgeable about that. But I do consider myself knowledgeable about languages. That that I do. Um, but um, in, in the case of this movie. I think, and also history, I know about history, but in the case of this movie, um, I think the director also acted as if this movie was aimed at a certain dem demographic, as in this movie was pr pretty much aimed at you and me, and then maybe sometimes at many, at many moments a little bit more me than you. You don't need to know a, a lot about psychoanalysis to understand this movie. But you do need to make a constant effort to put everything back in its context. And for that, you need to know the context, which is not the case of everyone, right? The, um, the way it's shot is not um, conducive to helping your mind putting everything in context because, you know, fashion being as it is, basically it looks like, you know, the action happened yesterday. Her outfits in general are pretty much in fashion right now, they could work. And um, the decor of uh, the practice, you know, it could it could be, you know, some, you know, rich people living room in Paris today, you know, with fancy, like, uh, kind of fancy um, collectibles and everything, right? Uh, except for the Ikea thing, because you told me, like, I did not I did not notice it, but you told me afterwards that one of the pieces, pieces of furniture in the room was actually an Ikea thing that probably did not exist in the 1970s. That's sloppy, by the way, director. I think... <laughs> I'm sorry, director. I don't mean to diss on you or anything, but that's sloppy. And people, they have troubles, you know, putting everything back in context. Like, for instance really keeping in mind 
it was not easy for this woman to go to Paris from Brazil. It's the 1970s. It was expensive. It took a lot of time. It was a big leap for her. Um, she did not have a phone, a cell phone. She did not have GPS. She did not have anything, right? It was not. This is something that you always have to keep in mind to really appreciate what she's saying and the action that's taking place in the movie, right? And um, other things are really important. You have to keep in mind that... Um, that uh, it was a time where psychoanalysis was still pretty new, like pretty new. You know, it was the 1970s, so literally like a, a 60 something years after Freud decided to start the business. So, yes, when she's making discoveries, you're like, oh, duh, girl. But no, not the because at that time. <laughs> Sorry, I, is that the or not the? It's not the okay. because at that time it was hard at that time, it was, it was, it was, you know, the, the knowledge about psychoanalysis was not as plentiful as now and also not as available. People did not have Google. People, it was not compulsory for the high school exam. I graduated at the age of 18 from high school, knowing more about psychoanalysis than this girl sitting for years in Lacan's practice. I, it's true, right? Because, you know, times have changed and you have to remember that all the time. So... That being said, I made this effort. I wish I did not have to make this effort because I would have preferred, um, you know, focusing on things that are on learning things instead of using the, the knowledge that I already had and, you know, having it spin in my brain. I would have I would have preferred focusing on things that I don't know so that I can learn things that that's that's first. And second, um, I don't know. Was it more expensive? Was it a problem just to, you know, gratify the viewers with some flashbacks? Just a few flashbacks, right? Just see the, the father on the little boat coming from Lebanon to Brazil, right? And just making it more lively for us. More lively. Just a little bit more lively. It's just a reason to watch the film twice. The first time you watch it and you try and work out what's going on. The second time you watch it and you just focus on the feeling. Well, like, I don't know if it's true to... Also, I would just like to point out that if there had been a van in that room, I would feel pretty confident in telling you that I can accurately identify whether or not it's a Kongu. <laughs> and if it was a Kongu, which of the five or so iterations of Kongu? However, the chair, I'm only semi-sure that I, I identified it as a particular... Uh, Ikea chair so I'm not going to be absolutely insistent that that was an Ikea chair but that's not that, that's actually not important the thing is it resembles to an Ikea chair which it means that the decor is misleading it's okay. just misleading the fact that it resembles is it a real Ikea chair that's anachronic or is it not we don't care what we care about is they are sitting in a room that's just that could be that could exist Anywhere, let's say from 1960 to today, wearing clothes that honestly could be today, could be the 1970s, right? And it's misleading. It's mis At the same time, you could say, mm, maybe it's just also to show us that these problems from back in the days are exactly the same nowadays, like that we could trans like transport the situation to any period, any time frame, and just um, 
because people are people and they always be people they, they will always be people something like this it's universal right it transcends you know errors why not however 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 what is the most important people understanding the the plot or making some kind of grand gestures or statement about people being people and whatnot right Well, fans of postmodernism will not only love the film, but they'll love disagreeing with what you're saying right now because there are infinite interpretations to everything, which is, as far as I'm concerned, one of the few things about postmodernism that I think is um, of some use. But the whole idea... I don't know if it's true. I don't know if it... I, I, I would say that Lacan is postmodern because his central idea is to do with the futility of trying to convey something that will objectively be received the way that you want it to be. Therefore, that's the same as saying there are infinite interpretations, so whatever you do is futile. That's why I would say that Lacan is a postmodernist. However, I mean, most of his contemporaries, many of them were Marxists, many people who interpret his work and translate his work will probably do so through the lens of something adjacent to postmodernism and Marxism. And I don't know that that necessarily means... That, well, I mean, that definitely doesn't mean that whatever they say is, is, is defines him. And so when it comes to Lacan himself, I'm not sure that... I think it's true to say that he was a postmodernist, but only, with, with a, only from a starting point. Because he had various political views that were not... Seemingly not the same as his contemporaries, who were all about, um, I don't know, like Simone de Beauvoir and mm -hmm. Jean-Paul Sartre. Would that have, would they have been contemporaries? They might have even yeah. sat in the same they, cafe de floor. I'm pretty sure they knew one another. Okay, and those people were way. Like, I don't think Lacan had the same views as those people. I don't, he certainly was not keen on communism as a as an ideology that as it, he thought he didn't think that people should identify as an with an ideology because he he had a, he had he almost had kind of like the only child uh, view of every, every snowflake is precious mm -hmm. and individual and it every single person is individual every single thing that is communicated is open to infinite interpretations and he didn't believe in the kind of collective group ideologies of for example communism which was popular among his contemporaries but one thing they had in common though is the core of their business Simone de Beauvoir existentialism I don't know how to call it in English existentialism oh existentialism <laughs> any fancy And um, basically, it's her doing her own psychoanalysis on paper, right? Yeah. You know, like autobiography and everything, right? It's just that instead of uh, telling what she, she's been through and what she thinks to a shrink, she's telling it to the whole wide world, and that's it, right? So at least they have that in common. Okay, let me throw another word at you. Jouissance. What does it means word? coming. Yeah. <laughs> Another question. <laughs> But that's a word that, that Lacan uses in his writing to describe um, the fact that people will always be misunderstood. You lost me at that point. Like, this is, is going way too 
too too far back, you know, in in in, in youth. To do with chasing ideals that will be eternally futile. So if you symbolise something, um, be it a father figure, be it the leader of a political movement, be it fame and fortune, whatever it is that you symbolise, you it's a futile thing to try and achieve that as if that's the only thing that's important. And he referred to that phenomenon, apparently in French, as jouissance. It is common for people in French, French-speaking scientists of all kinds and all sorts, to take a word and give it a new meaning according to them. Because I don't know why, but sometimes when they come up with a new concept, they don't want to make the effort to invent a new word for it. Therefore, that's also why there are so, so many um, uh, homophones. Not homophones, but like words with uh, several meanings in French. Because uh, someone just came up with one, one, a new meaning and that, that, that was it, right? By homophones, you're not talking about, for example, Samsung phones that are attracted to other Samsung phones as opposed to being attracted to iPhones. That's quite sure. Okay. I have one more Lacan quote. This one I quite liked. So the previous quote I deliberately picked out to illustrate the fog of some of his language, whereas this one is the opposite. He says, I always speak the truth, not the whole truth, because there's no way to say it all. Saying it all is literally impossible. Call, say that to Amber Heard. <laughs> Thanks for that nugget. Mm-hmm. But this, this, I, f- I just feel like the film itself, you're disappointed that you're not getting the whole truth because of the language and all that sort of thing. And I feel like the whole film simply is just a whole part of his idea that there is no such thing as truth. You just, you just say a bit of it. And the feeling that's conveyed is exactly what people are going to interpret anyway. I'm not disappointed about what I'm not getting. I'm disappointed about the lack of intention. And I'm disappointed that it's considered so acceptable. I'm, I'm a teacher. I can make a difference between someone who's not trying and someone who can't. And in this case, not trying. Sorry. It's true. You know it's true. Some people, like, um, there is a difference. And I I mean, I think I'm pretty good at spotting this difference. Someone has been lazy. I think it's the director. Because uh, otherwise, he would have made an extra effort. I mean, Mel Gibson, who is not known for being you know, the most um, knowledgeable person on earth, shot a movie about the life of Jesus in Aramean, a language that's dead and gone. It's been dead and gone for thousands of years, right? He did not have to. We don't care about Aramean because it's about the life of Jesus. It's about the Bible. You just stick to what's written in the Bible and you're good, right? But he made this extra effort uh, that in this case, was actually less useful and less mandatory than our Lacan movie that we, that we are talking about. Mel Gibson, when he wanted to make some kind of a weird adventure movie, that's a, I think it's a good movie, it's called um, uh, Apocalypto. 
It's about um, the action is set in pre-Columbian America. I think it's, it's in Mexico somewhere, you know, with Incas. No, not Incas, I'm sorry, with Mayas and Aztecs, right? Um, a, he shot the movie in actual Aztec and Mayan language. He did not have to, honestly, because the movie would have been just as good. Shot in another language, it would not make any difference. I don't think it would make any difference, but he made this extra effort, right? In the case of Adjuracan, the core of the movie was the language, and this effort should have been made. It should have been made. And if his next movie, because I heard what he'd be saying, the, I mean, the, the director, if the next movie is about Freud, and especially about his relationship with Marie Bonaparte, right, it would be better for it to be spot on. I think. Merci de votre avis, Monsieur Chotfontaine. Mm. Je fais des efforts. <laughs> Je fais beaucoup des efforts avec toi. <laughs> If you can do it, then why can't <laughs> anyone else do it? For real, we're not asking much, and we're not asking anyone to learn any language in two months, except uh, according to the to the legend, Napoleon uh, learned French in three months. But whatever, uh, we're just asking. I think uh, you know, just do a proper casting call. That's it. That's it. Well, I don't know. We might. I might get you back on to talk about Mary Bonaparte because. Oh yeah, that I know about. I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna pay attention to the Private Practice Podcast inbox. If you go to privatepracticepodcast.net and follow the contact us button, and I'll see if there are. I mean, there usually the 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 listener is admirably indifferent to communication. I feel like when I listen to podcasts, I'm never incentivized, except on a, a few occasions, to actually um, react to what they say. I talked to, to Dan about this in a previous episode in the context of small talk. When someone says something in a very satisfactory way and it's enjoyable to hear and they don't leave anything, nothing is lacking from what they said, I feel like, good, no need to react to that. And that makes me weird in conversation. And I feel like the listener of this podcast is... Uh, I approve of their lack of communication with us because, firstly, the last thing I want is just my inbox stuffed with people saying I didn't like your episode. Mm. And the second thing is, is that I just, if, if, people are, if people have lots of things to say, does that mean that there's just constantly something... Uh, something like I'm being a little bit flippant because I do talk to one of the listeners quite frequently and he has plenty to say about what's lacking however um I will pay attention to see if um if anyone says uh who was that incredibly uh sexy sounding <laughs> French man and when are we going to hear him again and then we can talk about Mary Bonaparte I can make like a a full um, storytelling time, storytelling mo moment, right? I write, I can write it beforehand about Marie Bonaparte, her life, what she's gone through because she had, like, spoiler alert, she had daddy issues. And uh, I know a lot about her, her family. Why name Bonaparte, right? Is she from the same family as Napoleon? Well, you'll see in the next episode. And also, <laughs> there's also the possibility that I could get Dan to listen to this episode and to give a thorough 40-minute critique of you. 
And we did not even talk about, you know, psychoanalysis in other countries. This is also something we talk about all the time. And I thought we were going to talk about that. We can if you want to. Okay, let's talk about psychoanalysis in China. It doesn't exist. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there are shrinks in China, but they are extremely scarce and rare. I have never known anybody, a Chinese person, who's seen, to, who's seen a shrink or who was willing to admit that they, they've seen a shrink. But one thing I can tell you, and this is also like kind of like uh, um, upholding my theory of people having several personalities depending on the languages that they speak, is that Chinese people love talking to foreigners about their private stuff. I know it sounds counterintuitive because people say that Chinese people are reserved. It's true. They are private. It's true. They are modest. It's true. It's true. All of it is true. But as, as soon as you become a little bit friends with them, they use, they, they know that foreigners can hear many things, many, many things, and will genuinely not judge. Genuinely, like, really, like, not give a fuck. Like, for instance, not, not, not give a fuck, but more like, just not judge. If you tell me you don't love your husband anymore, I will not judge you. Honestly, from the bottom of my heart, it's literally like a knee-jerk reaction. And I think many people who are listening to us right now, including James right now, who's looking at me weird, uh, we just don't care in the West. We just don't care. You don't love your husband no more. Th this shit happens. That's okay. Get the divorce, girl, right? But it's, that's why they talk to foreigners because so many things are acceptable for us. And also because some of, some of us, even many of us, have even a basic knowledge of psychology. Just, a, you know, like a basic, even if it's biased, even if it's not right at all, we, we still have like, all of us have kind of like this, you know, basic knowledge of self-care in a psychological manner, right? Basic knowledge of, uh, you know, just um, how to take care of yourself. And I've been the shrink unwillingly, but I mean, I did it because these were my friends, but... I, I've been the shrink of many Chinese people and I can tell you, I can tell you that many of the things I've heard could not be said in Chinese or at least not this way. And I speak Mandarin. And, uh, and this is also something that, uh, that I've been thinking about for a long time. How different... It, Basically, this is the question is, is like psychoanalysis white people thing? Like this was, I mean, when I say white people thing, of course, I'm, it's a caricature, but is it like just uh, a European language thing? Is it, right? Is it for people who speak a language from Europe? Because, um, because honestly, um, the way feelings are conveyed, the, and also nonverbal language and everything, I mean, I, I ask myself, if you are a shrink, let's not talk about China because it's a dictatorship and God knows also why people, people will not, you know, tell their, their thoughts to someone because they're also afraid of it. But let's talk about maybe a country that's a little bit freer, like Taiwan, for instance. Um, I wonder, I wonder if you're Taiwanese and you speak English very well and you study psychology in the West and everything you know about psychology has been taught to you in English or French or whatever, or German or Spanish or Portuguese, right? And then you go back to Taiwan, you open a practice. What's up with that? Oh, you mean so you go back to Taiwan and you start speaking Chinese with mm. people who come into your with practice? With Taiwanese people. Okay. 
and uh, everything you know has been uh, taught to you in another language and also in the context of another culture by people who do not have a deep understanding of the culture you come from and in which you are going to practice your your art, your your job as a shrink. Mm-hmm. I, I would like to know about that, right? It's, 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 these are things that are that I've been thinking about a lot, especially when I was living in China. Language is not anecdotal. It's not. It's not a footnote. It's not a footnote in uh, in mental health. Basically, it cannot be a foot a footnote in mental health. But then, if you separate the language, the if if um, you are in a relationship with someone who makes you feel like you can open up about things in a in a context that's completely unlike anything else in your whole world then take out the dictatorship of course because this, we're not, we can't it's difficult to mm-hmm. talk about people fearing for their lives but when you're not fearing for your life if you've just never talked about your feelings and there just aren't necessarily the words to in your language that would say the same thing that would be said in French, for example, that if, if someone gives you the conditions to be able to express something that you normally don't have the possibility to express, then that's what the therapeutic process is. And it doesn't rely on the language because you don't necessarily need to use the precise words because most of it's not going to be, most of it's the 70% that's, lost in translation anyway and the the analyst needs to or that it's not necessarily an analyst because an a, a psychoanalysis is one thing psychotherapy doesn't nece- doesn't involve an analysis mm. it just involves the relationship between two people and if you create a relationship that allows someone to transform because they've they discover the situation in which they can express something that normally they can't express and it doesn't really matter how they do that let's say they do it through interpretive dance and they start (laughs) dancing around the room and then they feel something has changed because this is something that's no longer previously that was exclusively inside their head and things that are exclusively exclusively inside your head become a kind of fantasy world that's not based in reality and you can't see them in the context of reality but when that dance is in the room no matter how bizarre it might seem to the other person in the room it's now externalized and that is part of the first step towards the therapeutic process so i think that what we're talking about is interesting and i think that what i'm not saying is um, the, 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 the Taiwanese person who studies in France and goes back to Taiwan is of no interest and we can forget about that idea. I'm saying the opposite of that. It's, 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 but it's more that I don't think that that means that they can't possibly give someone a therapeutic Setting. context. Yeah. Well, the first part of what you said is uh, basically what was first, the egg or the chicken? The relationship come, uh, was first or the, the talking? I think that also creating this relationship involves the talking. And you're saying that the talking is kind of induced by this, you know, um, comfortable relationship, right? The egg or the chicken? I don't know. Honestly, I don't. But um, what I know is that um, there are just things that are better conveyed in one language than another. 
Uh, for instance, there is the world famous example of quote unquote the most beautiful wor word in the world. It comes from uh, Turkish. It's a it's a word in Turkish, and in one word that I don't remember, in just one word, they can express the reflection of the full moon on water in one word, right? See, some things can be expressed real quick and real effectively um, in in languages, and and they take whole sentences and whole explanations in others, right? And then there's the psychological part. There are things that I feel very comfortable saying in Chinese because it just feels normal. It, it's acceptable, it's normal. This is how we've been taught Chinese, for instance. I would never tell them in English, at least not in that in, in this way. And, and, and God forbid in French, right? It's the same with English. The way I speak English and the way I convey what I think is way more direct in English than it is in French. In French, I would say that I would take twice the time, no, no, maybe not twice the time because there are other expressions, but I would sound very more diplomatic in the way I speak, I'm speaking in French, definitely. Um, and I'm not making an effort, it's just the way it is, right? So what I'm saying is, all of this has is important in the relationship that you build with a therapist, for instance, or a friend, right? And these Chinese people, that I've talked to, many of them, we spoke in English, of course. Sometimes in Chinese, but most of the time in English, right? And I feel that I also spoke with them in English also because it was it made them feel more comfortable saying the things that they want to say in English. Is it common in France, in French culture, for people to be rehearsing the... the uh, the art of the language they're about to use in order to communicate to a high level of language and not be listening. So in other words, two people are just putting divine words into the room and neither of them are hearing each other. I don't know, but what I can tell you is that French has definitely a tendency to be bombastic and pompous and uh there are like uh, there are settings in which if you're a little bit intelligent and a little bit knowledgeable about cultural elements you just feel compelled to up your game basically right um for instance lacan when he makes these sentences that don't mean nothing <laughs> Uh, and it's not he's not the only one right Merleau-Ponty was very good at that I done that like Merleau-Ponty because in in art history we, we have to to study that you know with phenomenology it's because of um, post-world war II art whatever right um, and so many of them so good at making these sentences just because he makes them look good you know in society it happens so often that I'm talking to my students and I say, kids, now I'm going to teach you a little word that just makes you look good in society. Oh, what does it mean, teacher? It means that very simple thing. And he's like, oh, so why don't we say the very simple thing? Because it looks better during the exam. You write it on the sheet of paper and then you will look more intelligent and get points. Brownie points, might I say, for that. That's French. But I think that we are two people here who, who both of us, by coincidence, the only two people in this room are two people who like things that are uh, a short, extremely clear, unambiguous explanation of something that was previously more complicated. And the construction of those words is of value 
because we have something now in the world that is kind of like makes something that we wanted to access accessible and we both like that and I don't think it's uncommon for people to like that but I also think that it's common for that there are equally other people out there in the world who find that extremely boring and are basically in the pursuit of things that are to them more flowery and poetic because that does it for them and when someone clearly explains something in a straightforward way that is to them falls in the bracket of boring things in the world that I don't care about and when someone comes along with some flowery language that falls into the bracket of life enriching things that I live for (laughs) there is a time and space for anything in life flowery language is for songs is for telling about your feelings, your love, your hatred, whatever you want to express. Flowery language is for, I don't know, whatever they call spoken word, right? Flowery language is nice, wonderful. But when you are trying to make a scientific point, I just finished writing a book about BTS. It's going to be out in July. And... um, Does that make you an author? I'm an author. Uh, it's a book about. Uh, it's a book that is aimed at people who listen to K-pop music, and I have thorough um, statistics about the um, the people who listen to BTS music. And by the way, fifty percent of them, according to the biggest poll ever realized in the history of polls, right? Fifty uh, percent of them are actually older, older than eighteen, so it's like it's not only teenagers. But with that being said, I know fifty percent are going to be teenagers. Therefore, I'm trying, you know, to 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 convey an analysis of BTS, the music of BTS, the style of BTS, everything in a language that is understandable by these kids, right? It's let's say it is a scientific work. It is a scientific work. Aside from the little anecdotes, it's it's um. It's written in French, by the way. It's uh, it's an analysis on what is this phenomenon commercially, even on the legal point of view. I talk about Korean culture. It's kind of as in depth as it could be with this kind of audience and this kind of uh, topic, right? I'm not using flowery language. I have meaning that I need to convey, and quite honestly, after so many years reading the works of other authors like Merleau-Ponty, like, you know, Lacan was a long time ago, but whatever, uh, Sartre and, what, and whatnot, I feel as though sometimes this flowery language is there to make up for the lack of meaning because they don't got nothing to say and they need to fill paper. That's uh, the way I see it. I, I think that is often the case. I think that you're describing something that is common in the world, but I think in the example of Lacan... I also do not like reading Lacan. Like I said, I tried, I got 25% of the way into Ecri and then I gave up. And that book is on my shelf in another country because I decided that it was not something that I would turn to mm-hmm. when I'm sat outside on the terrace enjoying the sunshine. Not worth the extra weight on the plane. However, <laughs> I feel like, firstly, I've benefited from... In the in the preparation for this, because I, because I had no interest in Lacan based on not liking the way he wrote, I never really bothered to find out what his ideas are. But in the but given that um, this film has come along and I was talking to the director and now we're talking about it, I decided that for that I was going to try and 
find out what his main ideas were. And I found places where people have explained them in exactly the kind of simple language that 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 that, that is easy to follow from a, a, a logical sequence that that doesn't leave much to interpretation. And I enjoyed that and benefited from it. So I'm glad that people have done that because otherwise I would never have known. But uh, the conclusion I had was that I do like his ideas. And I, but at the, at the same time, I also, in, in hindsight now, I like the film more because at the t- when, I, when I watched the film, I didn't know anything about Lacan and I do feel like I didn't learn a huge amount from the film about Lacan. Mm. But now that I've learnt about Lacan... I feel like I could enjoy the film for something completely different. I mean, it's a bit like the film about Margaret Thatcher. To me, that was a film about dementia, and I loved it. But most people generally received quite harsh criticism from people saying, what about the minor strikes? What about what aboutism? What about all the aspects mm. of her political career and the consequences and the way she affected people's lives that are just don't even feature as a footnote in the film. I just didn't care about that. It was a film about uh, an old woman developing dementia slowly, and I thought the film really... It was one of the few films I've seen that actually... And this is also coming from someone who's watched my own grandma develop dementia. Usually when I see things about dementia, I find them quite boring. This, the film about Margaret Thatcher, I can't remember what it's called now, what it is, uh, Meryl Streep plays Margaret Thatcher... The Iron Lady, that's it. Uh, in The Iron Lady, I enjoyed it. For, for, um, I, I thought it was just a really good telling of the process of developing dementia. But I can understand why someone would be... In, someone wanting to have... Or someone wanting to learn about Margaret Thatcher would come out of that film furious if what they wanted to know was the historical and political context of of changing the economy of a country and all that sort of thing but Mm. I didn't want that I just wanted a dementia story and I got it and I think I was slightly uh, definitely not irritated but I was slightly um, left wanting from the first from watching Adieu Lacan the first time because I wanted to learn about Lacan from zero and I didn't but I feel like a little uh, explore of YouTube and then you watch the film, I feel like it has something to offer that is not explaining the ideas of Lacan to an audience who doesn't know him. And the director, who is... who is... who's uh, totally, like... who's dived into the deep end of Lacan as a... as a writer and his ideas in psychoanalysis... I suspect that he also wants to just make some artistic thing that conveys mm-hmm. a feeling about Lacan as mm-hmm. opposed to here is a beginner's guide to Lacan that's easy to understand for for baccalaureate. The um, the movie is I think you just have to to pay attention to the title of the movie Adieu Lacan it clearly Im- implies that the movie is more about this woman, and also about their relationship, but not about his teachings or his ideas, his opinions or everything that's in the title. And The Iron Lady is the same. The movie is about The Iron Lady, not about the policy of The Iron Lady, not about, you know, the context of The Iron Lady. It's about The Iron Lady, right? I think titles are not innocent in this uh, in this context. 
And as far as the the Lacan movie goes, honestly, um, the, also the fact that it's in black and white, you kind of, I mean, I don't want to be mean to that director because I don't know him and he seems like a nice person, but it does feel like his like kind of shia seed eating hipster who wanted to make a black and white movie about something that's a little bit complicated and intricate, right? Without giving a single speck of context or anything to the to the viewer. So no historical context and actually a very misleading uh, overall atmosphere um, when it comes to, you know, historical context. And also nothing about Lacan. Who is this man? What did he do? Like anything, right? Uh, it's um, it's almost like he was wanted to make a movie for professionals. If you're a professional, you are good. Oh, you you're good. You're good, right? But if you're a professional, newsflash: you already know everything about this movie before even before you see you've seen it. Because no, I don't uh, agree with that. If you're a professional, you know about Lacan and you know about that Brazilian woman and you know about her and her journey and everything. You've already uh, learned and read about it. If you're yeah, a professional. but then the, 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 the whole point of watching the film is to see how it's shown. It's like if if you watch Titanic, spoiler alert, it sinks. <laughs> if you're watching Titanic to find out whether it sinks or not, yeah. then it's... You're right. You're right. You're right. But what I'm saying is, if you're a professional, then maybe you can enjoy it as much as the the director wanted it to be enjoyed. But if you're not a professional, you, like we've just spent quite some time now dissecting everything that lacks in this movie, by the way. So many things, so many blank spaces, so many things that haven't been done, that haven't been conveyed, that haven't been um that haven't been uh, given to to the to the viewer and the viewer is left alone you're perfectly articulating what many people in the industry think psychoanalysis is it's that which is lacking from what someone is talking about people, things people people go into psychoanalysis and they talk about all kinds of things except for the main thing and the the psychoanalyst sit, sits there and there's a person there saying all kinds of words but what they don't have is the life that that person's uh, spent their whole life immersed in and all the people within it. Everything is about what's lacking. Yeah, but in this, in the case of a movie, I guess that's okay because we move on to, with our lives uh, and also all the blanks, we can kind of fill them with whatever we got as a personal resource. But when it comes to psychoanalysis, right, you don't want to use your personal resource to fill in the blanks in what someone else is talking about. Because, I mean, like, you're not them. So, I mean, keep your information for yourself. Well, that, but that's the, that's the case for an analyst. But if you're just watching it for entertainment. Let's be honest. <laughs> Let's be honest real quick. Can you watch this movie for entertainment? <laughs> I think it takes It is not entertaining. I'm sorry it's not. It's not. It has qualities, many of them. But what, but entertaining is not one of them. It's not entertaining. There is nothing entertaining about watching two people talking over and over and over in black and white in the same decor at all times. There is nothing entertain it's not eventful. It's not festive, right? It's not eventful. Uh actually not much happens. Right, she has a breakthrough at uh, uh, at one point, and that's basically the most important thing that happens in the movie. 
it's not entertaining. It has many other qualities, but it's not entertaining. You're not watching that for entertainment, right? However, if the director had wanted to make something entertaining, it would have been possible. But then it would have been big budget. It would have been a movie about her life. Still, you know, sprinkled with bits of talking in the practice with Lacan, right? But most of the movie would have been flashbacks. Most of the movie would have been just even her talking on the phone when the ex-boyfriend calls. We would have seen that, right? And we would have seen the ex-boyfriend. And we would have seen many other things, right? This would have been entertaining. And then, but then it becomes another movie. It's not a movie about psychoanalysis anymore. It's a movie remotely about psychoanalysis, but mostly about the life of this Brazilian woman. Well, there's, there's a series on Netflix about Freud, which is kind of ridiculous. I watched mm -hmm. it. It's kind of Super like, Freud. Yes, supernatural phenomenon hunter Freud, the action adventure. Mm -hmm. And so these things do exist as, as for maybe I don't know well I wouldn't say for a different audience because it's me watch both of them but it's not you know it's not they're not exclusive right uh, they, they, um, both can exist and um, both are okay uh, but let's just not try to find anything uh, entertaining in Adieu Lacan and let's not try to find anything scientific or even remotely profound in a Netflix show about Freud uh, solving lives of people uh, in one episode. <laughs> I, I think that's the way it is, right? And this show about Freud, by the way, I haven't watched it, but the way you, you talk about it, it, it just reminds me of my mom. It reminds me of my mom and all the other, you know, uh, middle class French ladies who uh, who kind of use Freud almost like something like superstition. It's almost like superstition. Freud is kind of um, because of uh, of this uh, shallow knowledge, but still knowledge of Freud. And then, uh, you know, Oedipus, Oedipus complex come comes back randomly in the conversation and then the daddy issue come back and randomly in the conversation and everything like you know Freud is kind of like this he has become exactly what he didn't want it to become I guess <laughs> Freud is uh and that's why people make the uh, made this tv show by the way because uh the the person who wrote this tv show is someone who um who may have had uh, at least a few times in his or her life uh, a random conversation about like someone telling, oh, you know, uh, I've been dreaming about this, this. <gasps> this means that you have an issue with this or that your son, uh, whatever, or your dad, whatever. It's very common in, in France, right? This kind of conversation where people would just bring their, their, their reminiscences of, uh, of high school um, uh, curriculum about Freud and use them to cure people real quick, right? Like in the subway, you, you're sitting in the subway, someone tells you like, uh, you know what, uh, I haven't been uh, eating well this uh, for the past few days, or oh, I'm feeling sad or anything like something like this, right? Let's, you know, whip out um, the, the rem my, reminiscence of, my reminiscence of Freud and, and cure you real quick before the next station. <laughs> That's, the French people do that, I'm telling you. It's not only French people, but people do that. Freud has become this kind of thing, right? Freud has become this kind of thing, definitely. 
And it starts very early on in life. When I started learn about, uh, learning about Freud, it, I was uh, 17, 18. It was for the, you know, the high school diploma. We had to read books about Freud, Totem et Tabou. Uh, um, uh, I remember Totem et Tabou, but we, we read many of them, right? And then we, we use that just like it really resembles, you know, ancient Roman or Chinese superstition really re remembers that like if you do this this gonna happen like if you walk under a ladder you're gonna die if you see a black cat it's it's a, it's a bad omen right and the freud is the same you open the book and you're like so if you do this or if your dad did this or if your mom did this then this gonna happen right and this is what unfortunately it happened he became a totem himself but not a taboo though okay well mm -hmm. maybe it's time to say adieu Adieu. <laughs> that was good, though. Okay. And the film, for the listener who's um, now hungry to watch it... <laughs> it's not a bad movie. It's just that don't watch it if you're feeling sleepy. And just remember at all times, it's in the 1970s. This was another time. People didn't know as much as we do nowadays regarding pretty much anything back in the days and keep that in mind because otherwise you will not appreciate the journey of this woman you will just think she's stupid and she wasted her money and time well it's available to watch from the link that i'll put in the notes for this episode and you can also find that on privatepracticepodcast.net if you can't remember the long URL that was read out 40 minutes ago. <laughs> That's it. That's Preston it. From the ordinary boys. Preston 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 from the ordinary boys. <laughs>